the first chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, let us return to the greatest book in the Bible, if that can ever be said, the book of Hebrews. Before I go further, I would like to remark briefly, however, on this hymn that we sang prior to the prayer, and that is, Majestic Sweetness Sits Enthroned. It says in the first stanza, His lips with grace o'erflow. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. His lips overflow with grace. In the second stanza we sang, No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses, Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets. We further sang in that second stanza, Fairer is he than all the fair that fill the heavenly train. Verses 4 through 14 teach us that Jesus is superior to the angels. So much is that hymn in agreement with Hebrews chapter 1 that we ought to sing it and understand what we're singing when we do so. We sang in the third stanza, He makes me triumph over death. And before we finish this morning, we will certainly have seen that from the second chapter of Hebrews. This ought to be the best part of any worship service, and that is because the Word of God is being opened. The Israelites under the law stood in their place and rejoiced when the Word of God was read and they had understanding of it. We, so much more than the Israelites, should look forward to and anticipate the reading and the teaching and the understanding of God's Word. You have it in your hands. You may prove the things that you hear. You have the New Testament, which they did not have. We have an advantage over the house of Israel in that we have the blessed gospel contained in the New Testament. The Lord's people that are sincere will be looking forward at this moment to not only hearing this New Testament explained, but to hearing about Jesus, the Son of God, for He is their great apostle. He is their great high priest. He is the great captain of their salvation instead of Moses and Aaron and Melchizedek and the other inferior Old Testament types. We ought to be looking forward to this study of Hebrews. Whenever you open the Bible to look at Hebrews, you must ask yourself the question and be reminded of its answer, to whom is the book of Hebrews written? Hebrews was written to believing Jews, Jewish saints, Hebrew Christians. There isn't a book nor a verse in the entire New Testament written to sinners that have not been made saints by the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ and His Spirit. For until a person has been sanctified by the Spirit of God, there is nothing in him to appreciate, to understand, to love, or to act upon the Word of God. The book of Hebrews is no different. It was written to sanctified, born-again, believing Jewish Christians. The second question you need to ask is why was this book written? The book of Hebrews was written in order to bolster the faith of Jewish Christians. They had left Judaism, the worship of God under the Old Testament in order that they might follow Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth did not have much to offer 
as far as the senses are concerned relative to the Old Testament. There was the temple. There was the priesthood. There were the offerings and sacrifices. There was the splendor, the glory, all of the carnal ordinances. And then to follow the lowly man from Nazareth was quite a shock for Jewish Christians. As they endured persecution and affliction, and as they had certain Pharisees arise that had believed, that began to teach we ought to mix the two, the doctrine of Christ with Old Testament ordinances, they wavered in their faith and were ready to return to the beggarly elements under the law. The book of Hebrews is written from verse 1 to the end of the book to convince those Jewish Christians that Christianity, that Jesus Christ, that the New Testament and the gospel of the New Testament are far superior to what they had under the old. Jesus is better than the prophets. The gospel is better than the law. New Testament ordinances are superior to Old Testament ordinances. Jesus is a better priest than the Levites ever were for us. That's the argument of the apostle from the very first word of this book forward. As he compares, that is why we read so many times, better. He's made things better. As we read in verse 4, Jesus has a better name than the angels. Jesus is superior to the angels. Let us review briefly what we covered last Sunday from this first chapter. There are two sets of seven, do you remember? There are seven descriptions in verses 2 and 3 of the Son of God. In verse 2, we have two of them where it says that the Son is appointed heir of all things. Jesus Christ was a man. The most important concept to get down is Jesus was a man. We sometimes get Jesus and God all lost in our minds. Jesus is God. We certainly believe in the deity of Christ, but he was also a man. And that's why he was appointed heir. God is already heir of all things because he already owns all things. Jesus was a lowly man who didn't own a place to set his head at night when he rested. But now he is appointed heir of all things after his resurrection. There is no greater event in all the Word of God than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ is of no value without the resurrection. It was at the resurrection where Jesus ascended up on high and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, principalities and powers being made subject to him, and he was appointed heir in his human nature because his divine nature already owned all things. He was appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. Did Jesus make the worlds? Ah, oh, this is where we must rightly divide the word of truth, brethren. Jesus was a man. Jesus was born of a woman, made into the law, lived 2,000 years ago, lived 33 and a half years and died. Did Jesus create the worlds? Yes, in his divine nature. Because what is Jesus or who is Jesus? He is God manifest in the flesh, the great mystery of godliness. That's a mystery, but it can be understood because it's been revealed. We can't understand it fully, however, how that God, the infinite spirit, the infinite eternal spirit, could join himself to a human nature, a human body, and the two of them could come into union where they would never be separated. And the name Jesus Christ applies to both of those natures. That is why we can read Jesus created the worlds. 
Also, we can read that Jesus is appointed heir of all things. In the one, it's speaking of his divine nature. In the other, it's speaking of his human nature. Verse 3, let's pick up the next five. Jesus, the Son of God, is the brightness of his glory. If you want to see the glory of God, guess where you should look? To Jesus Christ. You can't see God. God is an invisible spirit. Next, it tells us that Jesus is the express image of his person. And that's why we read over there in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. You can't see God, but you see Jesus. By looking at the life of Jesus Christ, we see God. We see the righteousness of God. We see the grace of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God in and through Jesus Christ. For in him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In the body of Jesus Christ there was contained all that God is. That's what it says. I believe it. The fullness of the Godhead was in the body of Jesus Christ. If you want to see God, you look to Christ. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. What nature is that referring to? The divine nature upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that by Jesus Christ, all things consist. They stick together. They're held together. The molecule is the finest example of that. Isn't it in all the world with neutrons, protons, and electrons running around, not crashing into each other orderly? What holds a molecule together? By him all things consist. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Why, it's the word of the word of God that holds all those things together. It says of the Son of God, he had by himself purged our sins. What nature is that referring to? Did God purge our sins? No, the man Christ Jesus is the mediator between God and men because it took a man to die, as we shall see in chapter 2. And he is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, again speaking of his human nature. In that third verse, which we just read, what two words are excluded from the New International Version, the New American Standard Version, and every other version of versions? By himself. By himself. Do those words mean anything to us in this congregation? <laughs> Do they mean anything to us? Is it Jesus and the Pope? No. By himself. Is it Jesus and the minister? No. By himself. He purged our sins. Is it Jesus and the law? No, by himself. He purged our sins, but those two words are missing. That was the first set of seven descriptions of Christ. After you look at those seven descriptions, do you want to compare him to a prophet? After looking at those seven, do you want to compare him to an angel? No, Jesus Christ is better. As it goes to teach in verses 4 through 14, where Christ is compared to angels. And the set of seven there are the seven quotations that we have from the Old Testament. Now, Jews would love to hear a minister quote from the Old Testament. And so Paul uses seven quotations from different places in one short chapter. And people wonder why we preach and study the Word of God the way we do here a little and there a little, because the apostles did it that way. In verse 5, the question, a rhetorical question. Consider the force of Paul's argument. To what, which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son? This day have I begotten thee. To which of the angels did God ever say that? None. 
He asks the question. He just leaves the question. That's the strongest force of arguing you can ever have is a rhetorical question. Just think of that Jewish mind. Yeah, that Jew knew well about Psalm 2, verse 7, where that prophecy was made. That was never said to an angel. And he goes on to explain that the angels are nothing but servants. They're ministers. They're not sons. And so we go down through this first chapter. We have seven quotations and seven arguments following those quotations that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Remember, he's writing to Jews. Therefore, we have these arguments. The Jews, first of all, put a lot of stock in their prophets. But he blew the prophets out in the first three verses. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken by his Son. And then he gives seven descriptions of why the Son puts all the prophets in the shade. Who do you want, the Son or the prophets? Well, it's obvious. Verse 4, he takes up angels. Because in the Jewish mind, angels were superior to the prophets. And in their mind, they were right. The angels are superior to men. They were made mightier than men. Men are made lower than the angels. And it was through the angels the Jews received the law, as we're going to see again this morning. So for two chapters, Paul is going to prove that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Chapter 1, the emphasis is on his deity. As we read in verse 8, But unto the Son he saith, who says? God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the strongest proof of Christ's deity in the Word of God when God said to Jesus, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God calls Jesus God. Now, do you want a higher source of authority for the deity of Christ? And no wonder, when we pick up a New World translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, we find verse 8 saying that God's throne is forever and ever. Instead of thy throne, O God. Because it tells us, unto the Son, he saith. You see how that verse has everything you need? The Son is God. And God said the Son was God. But Charles Taze Russell says the Son was not God. He was a God. But we can rest our case on Hebrews 1.8 regardless of what the NWT might tell us. New World Translation. Don't look at me with a questioning look like that. You should know what that is. It's a, it's a piece of trash. The whole chapter is to establish the deity of the Son. Before we move on, what is the other place in the first chapter where the New American Standard Version does quite a great job of corrupting the Scriptures. Verse 6. Verse 6. And again. Comma. Now anybody in here with an intelligence higher than 80 knows that the words and again are referring to the fact that Paul is quoting another passage of Scripture because he used them once already in verse 5. In the first part of verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 2. In the second part of verse 5, he quotes from 2 Samuel 7, so he says, and again, because he's raising proofs of Christ. And then in verse 6, he says, and again, which simply tells us Paul's going to quote from another place, proving the same point. That's what the words, and again, mean. 
Now remember what the New American Standard Version tells us. It tells us that when God will bring in the first begotten again into the world. Now wait a minute. And again is applying to the fact that Paul's quoting another passage of Scripture. It's not that the angels of God are going to worship Christ when God brings him again into the world. We're not waiting for Jesus Christ to return to this earth and set up a kingdom on this earth. Jesus Christ has set up his kingdom and is set down now on the right hand of God. All principalities and powers are subject unto him. He reigns now. And we're not waiting for him to come to this earth again and sit on a throne. The next time this earth sees him, they're going to wish they hadn't. Because he's going to come in flaming fire with his mighty angels destroying this place. And take us to a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible's so plain on that, we don't have time for it this morning. Let's now go to chapter 2. We need to get to chapter 2, or it's going to be 1 o'clock. Hebrews chapter 2. If I had to pick a favorite word in chapter 2, it's the first word. Does that first word mean anything to you? Therefore. What's the question we are to ask whenever we see that word in the Bible? What is the therefore there for? The therefore is there to tell us Paul is going to draw a conclusion from the 14 verses he's just written to you. All the things he said in chapter 1 about the Son of God, he is now going to draw a conclusion. If Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power, if Jesus Christ made the worlds, if Jesus Christ has a better name than the angels, if Jesus Christ is set down on the right hand of the majesty on high, if Jesus Christ is God, if Jesus Christ is above the angels, if Jesus Christ made the angels, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. New Testament Christians, New Testament Jewish Christians, if all these things are true I've given you in chapter 1, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. If we think our old fathers under the Old Testament should have given heed, we much more, because Jesus Christ is better than the prophets. Jesus Christ is better than the angels. Therefore, therefore means in consequence of that. Consequently, as a result of what I have said, because of what I have said, is what the word therefore means. A very important word. The scriptures are a very argumentative book. They're trying to persuade you. He gives you a number of arguments in chapter 1. And then he says, therefore, as a result of these arguments I've given you, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. These Jews were beginning to waver in their faith. That's why the whole book is about faith and holding it steadfast. They were thinking of going back to the law, going back under Moses. We ought to give them more earnest heed. Don't let these things slip, but remember them. Keep them in our minds. Study them. Oh, the word therefore is so important. Where in the book of Romans do we find an important therefore? 12.1. The first 11 chapters of Romans are doctrinal. The last five chapters, the last five chapters are practical. And what does verse 1 of chapter 12 begin with? I beseech you, therefore. Why? After he's described in 11 chapters what God has done for us, don't you think you ought to be motivated to do something for him? I beseech you, therefore, 
brethren, by the mercies of God. I've spent 11 chapters describing the mercy of God. Now, what will you do with it? I beseech you, therefore. The Bible is filled with those words, and when you find a therefore, you are at a point where Paul has taken his doctrinal message and is now going to press it on your conscience. Therefore, Jewish Christians, therefore, brethren, this morning, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. The things that you have had taught to you from the Word of God under the New Testament are things that you ought to take great heed to. Lest at any time we should let them slip. Brethren, there is a chance. There is opportunity for you to let them slip. What happened to the churches of Galatia that Paul ministered to? They were being circumcised in order to guarantee their way to heaven. And Paul said, you've fallen from grace. They fell from their proper understanding and deliverance of the law of Moses. We can fall from grace. That does not mean we can lose our eternal salvation. That means we can lose our understanding of eternal salvation. We can let things slip. What happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? What's the theme of 1 Corinthians 15? Resurrection of the body. What happened at the church at Corinth? They had men standing up in that church teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. And you know what Paul told them in verse 2 of that chapter? That the gospel only saves you if you keep it in memory. By which also ye are saved if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Because Paul had preached the resurrection of the dead. Other men had stood up and were preaching there is no resurrection. Now that salvation there isn't salvation from hell. Those Corinthians were saints. They were going to go to heaven. But what were they, what did they need to be saved from? They needed to be saved from a life without hope in this world. Because he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The gospel saves you from misery of a hopeless life and death only if you keep in memory the resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15. We can let things slip. The Corinthians had let those things slip. You need to keep it in memory. That's why we spend four hours a Sunday trying to keep it in memory. That's why I encourage all of you to study and read your Bibles during the week, to get with each other, to use the outlines that I prepare you, simply to keep these things in memory because we can let them slip. Oh, what a danger there is in that. There's a warning of what can happen. We can let things slip. Let's go to verse 2, which is going to explain the therefore. Verses 2 through 4 go this way. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. The word spoken by angels is the Old Testament law. I can remember back before... I was ordained to the ministry. I used to take Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2 and apply it to the words spoken by angels against God. I will be like the Most High when God casts them out of heaven. Well, that's way off track. That misses Paul's whole argument here. And I want you, I'm saying that simply to bring you to focus on what is under consideration. The word spoken by angels is the Old Testament law. That's what Paul's comparing to the whole book. Law versus gospel. Old Testament versus New Testament. Moses and angels versus Christ. You say, was the law spoken by angels? Well, let's prove it. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Galatians 3.19 tells us, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. 
and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Who was that mediator? But Moses. It was ordained in the hands of angels. Come over to Acts chapter 7. Paul says to get two witnesses if you're trying to prove something. So let's look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, where the Stephen is concluding his sermon to those rebellious Jews there in the seventh chapter of Acts. Verse 53, speaking of the fathers of the Jews who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And we can look at other places. You can go to Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 78, other places, and find that God gave his law through angels. Now let's go back to Hebrews 2.2. 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. Do I need to give you examples this morning that when God said something under the law, he meant it? That's what it means that the word spoken by angels was steadfast. It didn't vary, and there was no compromising. If God said Moses... And let's use the best example from the Old Testament. I want you to speak to that rock and bring forth water for the children of Israel. Moses said to himself, I'll smite it with my rod instead. Water came forth, but God judged Moses. The law was steadfast. You did not modify or compromise the law of God. It was steadfast. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. God was just under the Old Testament. I'll make a point about the new in just a moment. He was just. I read in Numbers chapter 15 that a man went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. Now that doesn't sound like a heinous crime, does it? Moses came in before the Lord and said, what should we do, Lord? God said, stone him to death. Maybe they won't do that anymore. Numbers chapter 15, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Disobedience to parents resulted in death. Speaking lightly of parents resulted in death. Stealing resulted in restoring fourfold if you were trying to sell it. If you were caught with it and you weren't trying to sell it, it was easy, twofold. The law, the law was steadfast and every transgression received a just recompense of reward for disobeying it. Well, now, if that's true about the law of God, and those, these Jews knew it well, they knew the Old Testament, and they knew how that God had applied that law very severely. If that is true, look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, that word salvation there is not referring to your salvation from hell because there isn't any way you can neglect it because Jesus Christ took that into his own hands, died on the cross and said, it is finished. And if he said it is finished, you're not going to neglect it so that it's lost or unfinished. The salvation here is the gospel. Let's go back to our comparison. Old Testament versus New Testament. Law versus gospel. How shall we escape if we neglect the gospel of salvation? That's the sense of the words. Can I prove that? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. Which at the first began to be spoken. So what kind of salvation is it talking about? The gospel of salvation, because that's the salvation you speak. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. 
Now notice the comparison. For if the words spoken by angels, the great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, it's comparing two different forms of worship. One administered by angels, the other administered by the Lord, and confirmed unto us by them that heard him. What's the plural pronoun at the end of verse 3, them? Confirmed unto us by them that heard him. The apostles. The apostles confirmed the word of the Lord. Jesus Christ was the first minister of the gospel. Jesus, John the Baptist's ministry was simply to introduce Christ. He didn't go read everything John the Baptist said in the gospels. You don't learn much about Christ or the gospel. He was simply to pave the way for Christ, who then preached the gospel to the poor. And then when he died, his apostles went and preached everywhere, all things whatsoever Christ had commanded them, according to Matthew 28 and 20. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's a question, isn't it? There were four rhetorical questions in chapter 1. Here's another one in chapter 2. The question mark is at the end of verse 4. How shall we escape? See, it's a rhetorical question. He just leaves that up to your imagination. Is there any way to escape? If you couldn't escape under the Old Testament, how in the world will you escape under the New Testament when the one you're dealing with is not prophets, nor is it angels, but it is the Lord? Verse 4, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. The appeal that Paul is making right here are there at least four reasons why the gospel ought to be given more attention than the law. First of all, the minister. The Old Testament only had angels. He's taken all of chapter 1 to prove that they're but servants compared to the Son. So it's the minister. You have a greater minister under the New Testament. It's the Lord himself. Not only the minister, but it's the judgment involved. If God judged the disobedience under the law, steadfastly and with a just recompense how much more is he going to judge under the new testament for instance look at chapter 10 hebrews chapter 10 let me put to rest a great misconception and that is this the old testament was severe the old testament used fear as a motive the Old Testament warned of God's judgments in order to enforce obedience. And there is a misconception today in our peace-loving, sissified generation that the New Testament is simply one of mercy and grace. The New Testament carries with it greater severity and greater judgment and greater warnings and greater justice than the Old. They have it opposite. Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 29. We have to comment briefly. Notice verse 28. Get verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. M most ministers today would say, well, that was a horrible way to live. That was a horrible way to live when you died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Today we're under Christ who will forgive you. Let's read what Paul said. Verse 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye 
shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. You disregard the Son of God, you will be dealt with with greater severity than the Old Testament ever thought of bringing on the people of Israel. There is greater motive to obedience under the New Testament. There is greater emphasis on fear in the New Testament than in the Old. That is the argument of chapter 10. Look at verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul doesn't say it was. It is. Look at chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I am sick of a milk toast gospel. Hebrews 12 and 25, the apostle writes, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, that was Moses, much more shall not we escape if we turn from him that speaketh from heaven, the Son of God. Much more. Not a little more. Much more. The New Testament is a fearful revelation of the judgment of God. Because he is granted greater privilege, there is greater responsibility and duty. And when he comes, if you have despised greater privilege, you will receive greater judgment. And what was the greatest judgment the Jewish, the Jewish nation ever endured? Was it being led captive into Babylon? No. Was it having Samaria led captive by the Assyrians? No. It was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., where Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24 that he would bring tribulation upon that nation the likes of which the world had never seen nor would see. Because what did they do? They crucified the Lord of glory. They did despite unto the Son of God. They trod him underfoot. And he destroyed them with the greatest tribulation and persecution and judgment he ever brought on a nation of people. When they were all wrapped up in the city of Jerusalem at the, at the time of the Passover, the Roman armies surrounded that city and leveled it, and when they got through, they could draw a plow across Mount Zion. And the eighth wonder of the world, known as the rebuilt temple, was gone. He destroyed them. 1.1 million by actual count by the Roman government died. 97,000 were taken captive to work in the salt mines in Egypt. This generation was 10 years before that event. He's writing to Hebrew Christians. They knew the warnings of Christ in Matthew chapter 24 that the destruction of that nation was coming when Jesus said, Behold, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. And that's why Paul is saying, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Because it was just around the corner. Back to Hebrews chapter 2. Back to Hebrews chapter 2. Oh, brethren, don't ever be deceived and deluded into thinking the New Testament is an era of compromise. That it's an era of mercy at the expense of justice. The New Testament brings with it greater warnings and greater judgment than did the Old Testament. Verse 4 tells us that God bore them witness. We're pointing out the fact that the New Testament is being appealed to by Paul because it had a greater minister. 
it brings greater judgment, it is of greater worth. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So is typically an adverb that tells us in the manner specified. Well, there is no manner specified. It is an open comparison. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The New Testament is so great in its revelation of what Christ and God have done for His people. How can you ignore its infinite worth? That's an appeal that Paul is making. And last of all, Paul is appealing to the fact in verse 4 that God bore witness to this revelation. You know, the Jews loved the fact that Moses had performed those plagues upon Egypt. That confirmed his ministry. They knew Moses was God's man because of his sign gifts. They knew Elijah was God's man because he brought fire down from heaven. But did those two men do as much as the apostles of Jesus Christ did? Why, well, I read in Acts chapter 5 that Peter, simply walking down the street, Men tried to lay under his shadow that they might be healed. I read of the Apostle Paul that he sent out handkerchiefs, that if a handkerchief had touched Paul and then touched a sick person, he was healed. Now, were those confirming gifts? Indeed, God bore witness to his word, and it was those sign gifts that confirmed the ministry of the apostles. We don't need sign gifts today. Why don't we need them? We have the word of God. So we don't have to rely on apostles speaking by the inspiration of God. They wrote by the inspiration of God, and we have the written word. The other reason we don't need sign gifts today, and there are no sign gifts today wrought by the Spirit of God, except in the way of judgment on deluded souls, the reason we don't have sign gifts is because the apostles witnessed the resurrection of Christ, confirmed it by all their miracles, a great multitude of people believe those things which they heard, we don't need to have it confirmed again because it has been confirmed in the eyes and ears of so many witnesses. Let's look at a couple of examples of God confirming. I just want you to see the force. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If twelve men, and there were more, that were called apostles, had gone forth preaching that a man had risen from the dead and was seated at God's right hand and was soon coming back to judge the earth, how long would that story have lasted? I mean, there have been tales and myths and stories and fables, and, and who believes them? But this man was confirmed by men who had miracles such as raising the dead, raising the sick, the lame, taking up serpents, and so forth, when they preached, their message was believed. And their message was believed, and it has come down to us because men have had it believed beyond any refutation. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are before the rulers of the Jews. And they have just healed in the previous chapter a man who was lame from his mother's womb, according to Acts 3 and verse 2. Well, now they've healed this man, and they're explaining to the crowd how they healed him through the name of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 13. Now when they, that is the rulers of the Jews who did not believe Jesus, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled 
And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now these men had just crucified Jesus a few days earlier. Verse 14, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Do you see how God confirmed His word? Here are some dumb fishermen. And they're dumb, and all you had to do was listen for two minutes, and you knew they were dumb. They didn't have the Ivy League accent. They didn't have the theological degrees. They didn't have proper grammar all the time. They were fishermen, and they knew that. But when you've got a man standing there who's been lame from his mother's womb, and everybody knows he's been laying at the beautiful gate of the temple for years, you don't say anything because your mouths are shut. Notice what they said in verse 16 after they've sent the apostles a little ways away. They talk among themselves in verse 16 and they say, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. Now the book of Acts is an interesting book because you have examples like this from the first chapter to the last chapter. Over and over, God confirming the word of His apostles with miracles. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. If God sent such a, such a confirmation for the gospel, we ought to give very earnest heed to that gospel. Let's look now at Hebrews chapter 2 and the fifth verse. Oh, I am skipping so much material, but I'm going to keep my promise. One chapter a Sunday. Or we'll be in Hebrews for years. And there'll be time later to preach from the book of Hebrews again. Oh, I was so frustrated last night with my wife at just explaining to her my grief that I had enough to preach a week on the second chapter of Hebrews. There is so much good material in what we just covered. But hopefully you've got the message. Those four verses are stuck in like a parenthesis. Chapter 1 compares Christ and the angels in Christ's deity. Jesus is God. Jesus created angels. Therefore, Jesus is greater. You ought to listen to Him rather than the Old Testament. Remember the Jews. What vision had they had of Jesus? He was a carpenter from Nazareth. He wasn't even good looking. He didn't even have a reputation to attract people to follow Him. The last they saw of Him, for most of them, was hanging on a cross, being despised and ridiculed by Jews and Romans alike. Now, wouldn't it be tough to follow a man like that when you could have the Old Testament form of worship? But see, Paul's starting right off the bat by reminding them of who Jesus actually is and that He is not humiliated any longer. He's at God's right hand. Chapter 1 is, Jesus is God. Chapter 2 is, I'm going to explain to you Jews why Jesus did come down and become a man and die as a man, lower than the angels. Remember, Hebrews 1.4 said, Jesus was made better than the angels. Hebrews 2.9 says, Jesus was made lower than the angels. First of all, he deals with his exalted state. Now he's going to deal with his humiliated state of the cross in Hebrews 2, 5 through the end of the chapter. Verse 5, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. Unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. Brethren, you, we need to make an interpretation of this verse. What is the world to come 
that God did not put the angels over, but put Jesus Christ over? Is it the new heaven and the new earth? Or is it the gospel, church, and the kingdom of Christ? Big difference in interpretation. Is it a millennial kingdom, the world to come, that Christ will be over and the angels will not be? The world to come here is the gospel church world, whereby we are under, it's a New Testament world. It's a gospel world. It's the church world, as opposed to the Old Testament world, the law world. Can I prove that? First proof in the verse, whereof we speak. Is Paul speaking about the new heavens and the new earth? Whereof we speak, present tense. Not that I spoke to you in another epistle. Not that I'll speak to you in chapter 8. Whereof we speak. What's he talking about? He's talking about the law given by angels versus the gospel given by Christ. He's talking about Old Testament religion versus New Testament religion. First proof that the world to come is the fact that Paul said, Whereof we speak, present tense. And what is he talking about but comparing the Old Testament world versus the New Testament world? Second of all, we find that it states here in the context, as we're going to see that Christ is presently reigning over this world to come. He's presently reigning over it. He's already been set at the right hand of God. Sit on my right hand. To know that Jesus Christ is going to reign over the new heaven and the new earth does not even fit with the argument of convincing the Jews they ought to accept the gospel and forsake the Old Testament. This point fits. Another proof is the fact that Paul proves it by appealing to Psalm 8. And Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, which are quoted here, verses 6 through 8, describe not the new heavens and the new earth, but they describe the world now. As we'll see when we get to verse 9, when it says, We see Jesus, who was made, past tense, crowned with glory and honor. He's already been crowned. This is not something we're waiting for. A very important distinction here. You say, well, why did he use the word world? Why did he say the world to come? To throw off anyone who wanted to believe that Jesus Christ wasn't reigning right now and was waiting until some millennial kingdom or some new heavens and new earth to reign. That's why he used the word world. If they would have studied the book of Hebrews, they wouldn't have problem with the word world. Come over to Hebrews chapter 12. This is another proof. Hebrews chapter 12. We've read verse 25. You know what verse 25 is doing. It's comparing him that spoke on earth, Moses, to him that speaks from heaven, Christ. Look at verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth? That's God speaking on earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Now hath he promised, I'm going to shake one more time the heaven and the earth. Where was that promise made? The book of Haggai, chapter 2. When was that promise fulfilled? When did God shake the heavens and the earth? At the coming of Jesus Christ, who overturned Old Testament religion and brought in the New Testament form of worship. God shook the heavens and the earth the first time at Mount Sinai. 
There was the patriarchal age of Abraham, of Noah. They worshipped God in a very individual way. On Mount Sinai, God shook the heavens and the earth with His voice as He thundered out the law and gave the Old Testament form of worship. Jesus Christ came into the world. We read in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. It's a new form of worship preached. And the shaking of the heavens and the earth is a figure of speech used to describe God totally turning things upside down religiously. The religious world is turned upside down. Old Testament religion is floating away. God's brought in a new form of worship. Most important to understand that. Look at Hebrews 12. Let's get verse 27. You know the context here. He's comparing Old Testament to New Testament, so you know what he's talking about. But let's prove it further in the, in the next verses. And this word, yet once more, the fact that God's only going to shake one more time, those were Haggai's words, not Paul's words. Haggai's. Haggai said God's going to shake one more time because Haggai was the one prophesying before Christ came. Paul's quoting Haggai, this word, yet once more. Signifieth, see, it's a sign. Brethren, you're not going to be sitting in your lazy boy at home and all of a sudden start rattling around because God's shaking the heaven and the earth. He's signifying something. It's a sign. The, the Bible's so plain if we'd read it. Yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. If you can shake something... Everything that's loose is going to fall away. Well, what's Paul preaching in the book of Hebrews is falling away. Old Testament form of worship. As of those things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And what remains? Wherefore we receiving a kingdom. And what is that kingdom? But the New Testament gospel kingdom under Jesus Christ as king. Wherefore we receiving. Not we're going to receive 2,000 years from now when God literally shakes the heaven and the earth, that's not under consideration. God's shaking the religious world because that word shake is a sign. It's figurative speech. He is signifying something. The changing of His form of worship. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve present tense God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God as a consuming fire. And he goes right back to the same point we have a new form of worship under Christ as King. God has spoken from heaven. He's already shaked the heaven and the earth. Old Testament worship has fallen away. All that can stay is what doesn't get dislodged by a shaking. Eternal things. Permanent forms of worship. Because, brethren, we're in the last form of worship there is. That's a lot of work. And if you don't read your Bibles, and if you don't review this material, you'll not remember it a year from now. The world to come is not the new heavens and the new earth, and neither is the shaking of heaven and earth a shaking that we're still waiting for. That shaking took place under the ministry of Jesus Christ and His apostles. Because the book of Hebrews tells us the 40-year period of time between 30 and 70 A.D. was known as the time of Reformation. Jesus Christ was reforming worship. And how did He do that? He shook the religious heaven and earth so that the Old Testament just floated away like dust out of a pillow or a rug. And what stayed were those permanent forms of worship under the New Testament, wherefore we receiving a kingdom. Let us serve Him. That's a lot of work. We could work it some more, but we need to move on. I'm, I'm in trouble now. Whereof we speak, 
Brethren, I ask you, what is Paul speaking of? What is Paul's argument? Old Testament versus New Testament. And I'll, you'll see it clearly as we get to verse 9. But now we have a quote. Verses 6 through 8. I like the way Paul puts it. He writes, but one in a certain place testified, saying. One in a certain place. Sounds like Paul forgot the reference. Or maybe forgot who wrote the 8th Psalm. Remember who he's writing to. Do you think there was any doubt in the audience? No. Not to a Jewish mind who's heard the, the law and the scriptures read every Sabbath day. They knew who Paul was talking about, but doesn't God give us leave to say things certain ways? If you don't remember the verse, brethren, just go ahead and say, I know it's back there, and if someone calls your bluff, go get your concordance and find it. But one in a certain place testified, saying, and here we take up with the chapter we read this morning, the 8th Psalm, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and it set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. This is what we call inductive reasoning. You take a group of various facts and pull them all together so that you can draw a general conclusion from the argument. Paul reasoned in the Scriptures. The Bible tells us that. This is reasoning in the Scriptures. He quotes this passage from the Old Testament, and we can draw certain things together, and then we have to make a generalization. First of all, man is lowly. Any questions on that? Man is lowly. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Second point, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. We have any problem with that? Pretend you're a Jew thinking of the Old Testament scriptures. You made man a little lower than the angels. Yes, we're lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. Uh-oh. You crown man with glory and honor. There's not much glorious or honorable about a man. What is man? that thou art mindful of him. I mean, they knew the Old Testaments where men are described as worms, grasshoppers, dust, nothing and less than nothing. Thou didst set him over the works of thy hands. Well, now, wait a minute. Men aren't in rule over God's creation. Verse 8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. All things aren't in subjection to men. They knew about demons. I mean, demons were running rampant during the time of the apostles and Christ. Now Paul makes a further argument. That's the end of the quotation, the first sentence of verse 8, where it says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, period. That is the end of the quotation. Now Paul, Paul now reasons this, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. He's telling you there's one word in Psalm 8 I want you to get. It's the word all. For in that he put all things under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now, you Jews just don't say, we've got the animal world under us. That's not enough. It's got to be everything because he said all. Do you follow his reasoning? Now, now look what he does. He says, based on our observation, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Man's lowly. Man's made lower than the angels. He's crowned with glory and honor. All things are put in subjection under him and under his feet. But we don't see that yet. 
Here's a Jew with the Old Testament, and they love the Old Testament. And what Paul has done to this point is prove they don't understand it. Because they know that it can't apply to man as they know man. Because we don't see all things under his feet. And we know that he's not crowned with glory and honor. Men still die. They don't, there's no honor in that. And that's why verse 9 is one of the most beautiful buts. It's one of the most beautiful verses in all the Word of God. Verse 8 ends with, But now we see not yet all things put under him, looking at man in general. We don't see all things under him. We don't see him crowned with glory and honor. So what is the fulfillment of this? The Jew must be asking in his mind, the, the believing Jew. And Paul answers it in verse 9, but we see Jesus. And he quickly runs back through the list to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8 by saying, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Remember to the Jewish mind the fact that the Messiah was pointed out as being Jesus of Christ was too much for them to accept. Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews, 1 Corinthians 1.23. They were expecting a great Savior to burst on the scene like David who would save them from the Roman Empire. Instead, they got a lowly carpenter who died on the cross. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews. But Paul is taking the Old Testament and now proving the value, the benefit, the glory of the incarnation. Incarnation simply means God made flesh. That's just a... Uh, a term used to describe the fact that God became a man. That was a stumbling block to Jews. But Paul is arguing here very carefully, very logically and powerfully, that, it, that Christ being made a little lower than the angels is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. But he's no longer a little lower than the angels because God has exalted him at his own right hand far above all principalities and powers. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That explains why. Remember, these are believing Christian Hebrews. They knew about the death of Christ. Crowned with glory and honor. We see, present tense, Jesus crowned with glory and honor. There is proof that the world to come is a world that we're in right now. It's the world under Jesus Christ. It was the world to come to a Jew who is looking for the new world under Jesus Christ. But it's already here. We see Jesus, made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Jesus was made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, Philippians chapter 2 tells us. The reason Jesus was made lower than the angels was so that he could suffer death. Angels cannot die. Luke 20 and verse 36 teaches us that. Angels cannot die. And after the resurrection, we'll be like the angels. Luke 20 and verse 36 teaches us. Jesus had to be made lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He died. He rose again. He was made heir of all things and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The logic, the beauty, the fit is wonderful to behold. 
to see the apostle teaching the glory of Jesus Christ. It tells us in verse 9 that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Salvation, Christ's death, is wrapped up in the grace of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. It is our practice to divide salvation into its five phases taught in the New Testament, rightly dividing the word of truth. When we read about salvation, we need to look at the different aspects of salvation. Remember the first phase is by the grace of God. For we read in 2 Timothy 1.9, God hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. There is the eternal phase of salvation when God the Father purposed salvation for His elect in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 1.9. But not only is that gracious, it was gracious when Jesus Christ died for us. Look at Romans chapter 3. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Ephesians chapter 1, speaking of the grace of God relative to Christ. After God planned salvation through election and predestination, what is the next phase of salvation? Jesus Christ must die to, perform, to, to provide the legal basis for salvation. After Jesus Christ dies and provides the legal basis, then the Spirit of God must apply the legal basis to individual men and women. After that, the gospel comes to those that have been born again, and they hear the gospel of salvation, and it comes to their understanding. There's four phases of salvation. And what phase comes after that? Are we still waiting to be saved? Paul said in Romans 13, 11, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. He didn't have it yet. What salvation is that? But the redemption of our bodies. Glorification. Five phases. Election, justification, regeneration, conversion, and final glorification. All by the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 1, speaking of Christ, to the praise of the glory, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Where is God's grace praised? In that He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. There's that legal phase of salvation. The legal basis, the transaction that took place whereby the just and eternal God was reconciled to sinful men through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, Hebrews 2.9 tells us that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. The first word I would like to point out in that phrase is the word for. Tasted death, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Let's first of all answer taste. That doesn't mean he just lightly partook of it. That doesn't mean he got close to death but didn't really eat the whole thing. The Bible tells us that he drank the cup of God, including the dregs. Taste is just here a figure of speech reminding us of the fact that there was a drinking involved. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples that they could not, and yet they would, in some respects, drink the cup that he was to drink of. He tasted death for. That word for there means in place of, because this is teaching the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. He was made a propitiation for our sins. God hath made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
He who bare our sins in His own body. This is a substitutionary death. So when we read that Jesus tasted death for every man, we may easily know that the ones that Jesus tasted death for are those that will not taste it themselves. Hell will be filled with men and angels that shall taste death for themselves. What can we conclude about them relative to Hebrews 2.9? They were not included in Hebrews 2.9, obviously. Because if Jesus Christ tasted death for them, they will not taste it themselves. Because Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death. First proof here in Hebrews 2.9 that it does not refer to every member of the human race is the fact that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death for them. Therefore, it can only apply to those that are actually received the benefits of that death. If Christ died for them, there is no way they can die themselves. The Bible says, He, speaking of God, that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, speaking to the Roman saints, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? And those all things of Romans 8.32 include glorification of Romans 8.29. If Jesus Christ died for you, if God the Father gave Jesus Christ for a man, that man most surely will receive glorification. You show me a man that is in hell like the rich man of Luke chapter 15, and I'll show you a man that God did not give his son for. Otherwise, he would have been glorified. And the proof is in the word for. First proof is in the word for. He tasted death for us. Christ died a substitutionary death. What in the world do you think he meant when he said it is finished? Who did Jesus Christ die for? He said in John chapter 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. He turned to a group of the Pharisees and said, but ye are not of my sheep. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read that Jesus Christ died for the church. In John 17 and verse 2, Jesus Christ gave up his life for as many as God the Father had given him. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Jesus Christ died for His people. Jesus Christ died a covenant death, and the only ones that realize the benefits of the covenant are the beneficiaries of the covenant. They are the ones that are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, as we read in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. He died a covenant death for specific beneficiaries. Those beneficiaries did not include the angels that sinned, and those beneficiaries did not include some of sinful mankind that God has purposed to show His wrath and His power in their eternal judgment. But we don't need to go elsewhere. We can read the context. Because verse 10 tells us, For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Jesus Christ tasted death for many sons. Jesus Christ tasted death for, verse 11, last word, his brethren. Jesus Christ tasted death, verse 12, for the church. Jesus Christ, verse 13, tasted death for the children which God hath given me. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of Him that sent me. 
that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus Christ tasted death for all that God gave him. And that is what is under consideration in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, when Hebrews chapter 2 says every man, it's every man in the context. Every son, every brother, every one of the children of God. You say, well, every man means every man, and it can't have that qualification. Well, let's see if you want to run that logic into Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Did every man press into the kingdom of God? Did the Pharisees, did the Sadducees, did the scribes, or did the lawyers? No, they did not. Did the Samaritans? Did the Romans? No. The every man there was very limited. What's it limited to? Every man that presses in. To those that follow Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. The combination of the words every man can easily be found with Godspeed. That program I told you about earlier this morning. Just punch in every and man and boom, they're all there. And if you would look at all of them, you'd find that over three-quarters of them apply to a very limited group of mankind in all of their contexts. It's simply an expression, every man in the context. Look at Colossians 1.28. Paul's speaking. He says, whom we preach, that's Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Well, now there's every man three times. Did Paul preach the gospel and warn chief crazy horse about Jesus Christ? How about Attila the Hun? How about Queen Elizabeth II? No! The word every man is limited to those that Paul preached the gospel to. That's understood if you read your Bibles with understanding. And so it is in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. There are many who want to take Hebrews 2.9 and teach from it that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty and satisfied the justice of God for all the sins of all men. If Jesus Christ satisfied the justice of God on the cross for all the sins of all men, then God has nothing by which to send men to hell. That's absurd. They accuse us of limiting the atonement of Christ. They accuse us of holding to a doctrine called limited atonement. They worship a Savior that died in the cross and secured the salvation of no one. We worship a Savior who died in the cross and secured the salvation for every man for whom he died. Every one the Father gave him so that he said, I shall lose none of them. Amen. Now, would you tell me who limits the death of Christ. They will teach that the people suffering in hell for their sins had an equal amount of God's love expressed toward them, that Jesus Christ died just as much for them, and the Holy Spirit worked just as hard to convict them. Well, then pray tell me what makes the difference between those in hell and those in heaven according to that scheme of heresy. Man. Man. I worship a God who is my Savior, and He has saved me by Himself. Amen. No wonder they want to get rid of two words out of Hebrews 1, 3. We need to move on, verse 10. 
we need to move very fast. The Jews did not like a Messiah that was a lowly man. They did, the, the incarnation was a stumbling block. The Bible teaches that I will set in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus Christ was a rock, but he was a rock that offended people. Because when you looked at Christ, the Old Testament told us there's nothing in him that will desire him. But now look what it says in verse 10, for it became him. Getting down lower than the angels was not something to ridicule Christ for. It became him. It actually adds to his glory. For it became him for whom are all things. And Paul sticks in this little description to remind them of who we're dealing with. It's Almighty God. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. Those are characteristics of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. It became him in bringing many sons unto glory. Jesus Christ came into this world with a purpose. He said, I come to do my Father's will, and that is to secure the salvation and raise up again at the last day all that the Father hath given me. John 6, 39. And that all are the many sons. I'll bring my many sons unto glory. The sons that God had written in His everlasting book of life to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It became Christ to be humiliated as a man so he may be a perfect captain through sufferings. Because Jesus suffered in human flesh, he's able to relate to us and be a better captain of our salvation because he endured everything that you'll ever have to endure. He suffered in every way you'll ever suffer and a whole lot more. And thus, he was made perfect and thus it became him. It was becoming to Christ to be humiliated in the incarnation. Now, verses 11 through 18 simply describe the fact and teach it and prove it over and over that Jesus had to become our nature in order to save men. In order to save a man, a perfect man must suffer the penalty laid on that man. Verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Who's the sanctified? We are the saints of God in Greenville. Who's the sanctifier? Or who does the sanctifying? Jesus Christ. We're all of one. We had to become of one nature. We had to have the same nature in order for Christ to redeem us. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Paul's going to prove that Jesus Christ and we had to be of the same nature by the fact that Jesus Christ calls the saints brethren. And now he's going to raise three quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 12, which is a quote from Psalm 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. That's a quote from Psalm 22. Did Jesus Christ declare the name of God unto the disciples? Surely he preached the gospel among the Jews. Did he ever sing praise to God in the church? Matthew 26 and verse 30. At the Last Supper we read, they sang in Him and went out. Jesus Christ sang praise to God in the midst of the church. And by the very fact that He would call them brethren proves they must be of one nature. Because what man can call a dog, though dog might be man's best friend, call him his brother. You have to be of the same nature. That's the point Paul's making. Verse 13, two more quotes. And again, I will put my trust in Him. You might say, how does that prove that Jesus 
is our brother. Because we trust in God, and Jesus trusted in God. Though Jesus was a God-man, yet he trusted in God. He trusted in God to such an extent that when he hung on the cross, his enemies said, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if he delight in him. He trusted in God, therefore he's just like us. He's of a nature that must trust in God. Next in verse 13, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. That's from Isaiah chapter 8. Jesus Christ will one day stand before God with the redeemed family and say, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. He will not stand before God and apologize, nor cry, nor weep, nor admit failure in those who are suffering in hell. Because he is a most successful and victorious Savior. He will stand there with a multitude saying, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. And fulfilled will be the words, I shall lose none of them. What a Savior. No wonder heaven rings in Revelation chapter 5 when the Lamb got to His throne and sat down. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Jewish Christians, because you are flesh and blood, for as much as, for the fact that you're flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same. He had to become flesh and blood in order for Him to die and be a acceptable sacrifice to God for your sins, that through death He might destroy Him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, God could have destroyed Jesus, God could have destroyed the devil simply by obliterating him by the word of his power. But what did he do? The highest angel we have any record of in the word of God is Lucifer, was Lucifer, now known as Satan, the devil. God joined human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, lower than the lowest of the angels, and defeated the highest of the angels with a being lower than the lowest of the angels. That is a God I can worship. Now does that put the devil to shame? And I hope he hears me this morning. God took a man made lower than the lowest of the angels and destroyed the devil, who was the highest of the angels. Michael the archangel did not bring a railing accusation against the devil, according to the book of Jude. And God destroyed him with a man. Do you notice how Paul is appealing to these Jewish Christians? The fact that Jesus was made a man is a glorious thing. It became him. It's becoming to the Son of God to have been made lower than the angels. For in that lowly state, he destroyed the devil. Does the devil want to try him now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> I laugh. Because the Lord says, he shall have them in derision all that raised their thoughts and voices and arms against the Most High. Destroy him that had the power of death. That is, destroy the power of death that he held over God's saints. It was the devil that deceived our first father and mother into the transgression of the Garden of Eden. It is the devil by which we, as the children of wrath, even as others, Walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. How did Jesus Christ destroy the devil? Do we believe the devil exists today? Yes. 
Do we believe that he has an effect on men today? Yes. Well, how did Jesus destroy the devil? John, first, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 15 and verse 56. The devil had the power of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin, and what makes that sting so great is the law, because the law was given to make sin exceedingly sinful. But what did Jesus Christ do? He took the whole law on himself, he obeyed it perfectly, and he suffered the full penalty of it, and he cut off the stinger. Because he cut off sin. By himself he purged our sins and sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. He put away those sins. There is no sting in death. What is death now? It's sleep. How terrible does that sound? I'd like a little bit of that. A little more than I get sometimes. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. He took them both out of the way. He nailed them to the cross, and they're done away with. I wonder what strength. God will ever try to raise or what charge will ever be raised against God's elect. There's no strength left. The devil himself has nothing to appear in the presence of God today and raise against the saints of God. You know, Job had to face that, didn't he? Satan came into the presence of God and accused Job. Can Satan do that today? No. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and brethren, here we are treading on ground that's not believed by much of the professing religious world today, and that is that Jesus Christ is now seated on his throne, and the devil is presently cast out of heaven and has been for 2,000 years. And he is no longer the accuser of the brethren, because the sting of death is gone, and so is the strength of the sting which is in the law. Didn't we just read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse, and verse 14 that Jesus Christ became flesh and blood that he might destroy the works of the devil? That he might destroy the power of the devil? Did he do it or did he not? Revelation chapter 12 is describing the coming into the world of a man-child in verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And brethren, is there any soul in here, man or child, that doesn't know what that is talking about? That is Jesus Christ, born of a woman, made under the law, caught up to God and sat down on his throne after his resurrection. And once he's sitting there, we then read about his seed, his followers, and how that this empire here described, the Roman Empire, makes every effort through the red dragon to destroy the seed of that man. But notice what we read in verses 9 and 10. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation. When did salvation come? But with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on God's right hand. Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
after his resurrection. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, past tense, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Once Jesus Christ had died, what in the world is the devil going to claim against the saints of God? What in the world can the devil say to God about the saints? What will he accuse them of? Jesus Christ has put their sins away. He's cast out of heaven into the earth. You say, I never heard that before. John chapter 12 and verse 31 says, Jesus speaking, red letter editions, now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. When did Jesus say that? 2,000 years ago. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. That's why Jesus came into this world, to destroy him that had the power of death. Did he do it? Amen. No one can accuse us before God. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? We're free, brethren. The devil's just on probation until he's locked away forever. Praise be to God for destroying him through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, let's finish up. Jesus became flesh and blood. Jesus became a lowly man for the glorious purpose of destroying death, for the glorious purpose of destroying the devil. And it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in being made flesh. Verse 15 tells us that by that death he delivered us who through fear of death were all our lifetime subject to bondage. Brethren, false religion preys on the fear of man because of his praise on men because of their fear of death. It is the fear of death that drives men to all form of religion trying to make peace, trying to avoid physical death, trying to guard against eternal death. And it's the death of Jesus Christ that secures us from that bondage. We are made free. Verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. You know, there are men who hear that Jesus Christ died a covenant death for his elect only, that he redeemed those that God had predestinated to be sons, and they say, that just isn't fair. I want to ask them a question. If it isn't fair for God to have left some of sinful, rotten, hateful, blaspheming, rebellious men in their own sins to their just deserts. If that isn't fair, then what do these people say against God in the fact that he never saved not one of the angels and they were made higher than men? Verse 16 is a glorious verse. For verily of a truth he took not on him the nature of angels. I read over in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. God didn't spare the angels. God didn't spare his son for men. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. Why? Why? What is man? You want to say that, those three words with meaning? What is man? God spared not the angels that sinned. Why did he spare any of Adam's fallen race that had sinned? In pure mercy and sovereign grace, so that he might show not only his grace and glory in eternity, but he will also show his wrath and his power. 
upon those who sinned against him. Now do you understand why in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 it says the angels desire to look into our salvation? Which things the angels desire to look into? They can't believe it. Creature beings made lower than them. God has intervened on their behalf and saved them by condescending as God all the way down to become a man, bypassing the angels. Which things the angels desire to look into? As we sing in that hymn, And Can It Be, Tis Mystery All. Tis Mystery All. Angel minds inquire no more. Tis Mystery All. The great mystery of godliness, God manifests in the flesh, not in the nature of angels. Verses 17 and 18 tell us how Jesus Christ is such a great high priest. We'll have much occasion to deal with this subject later. It tells us, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. What makes the greatest priest? A priest that partakes of the nature of those he represents, and a priest that partakes of the nature of the God to which he appeals. That is the greatest of all priests. This world had never had a priest like that. Those Levites were subject to death and were subject to their own sins. Our high priest is Jesus Christ. He was man. Therefore, he can commiserate with our sufferings, with our temptations. And he's also God, so he is accepted at the right hand of the Father. What a beautiful daysman. In Job 9 and verse 33, Job cried out that there might be a daysman that could put one hand on God and one hand on him and reconcile the two. Jesus Christ is that man. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He can be a merciful and a faithful high priest because he was made in all ways like his brethren. Verse 18, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. That is to comfort, to help, to aid, to relieve us, because he has endured temptations. You think you go through afflictions? Think of the afflictions of Christ. Do you have friends turn on you? When Jesus died on the cross, they all forsook him, and it was one of his familiar friends that betrayed him into the hands of the Gentiles. Do you ever feel like God has left you and you're out of fellowship with Him? Jesus cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you think Satan ever comes and afflicts your soul? Jesus Christ fought with that prince of this world over and over again. Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us go boldly under the throne of grace. We have a magnificent high priest. He is superior to the prophets. He is superior to the angels. There is a man seated in heaven at this hour that lowered himself, was made just like you, tasted death for you, and is a great high priest for you today, far superior to anything in the Old Testament.